Hello and welcome to COM42Cast, another exciting episode. My name is Miko Pawlikowski, and today with me is Luke Finney, the CCO at TerminusDB. Hello, hey. Luke. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thanks a lot for having me, Miko. It's great to be here. Fantastic. I'll take fantastic. Fantastic is in short supply, so I'll take as much as I can. All right. So to confuse you first, as we do to all of our guests, a weird question. What's your favorite galaxy? My favorite galaxy? Okay, so um, I'm a big fan of the Ian M. Banks culture novels, which are kind of, you know, sci-fi on a grand space scale. And it's all about, you know, artificially intelligent ships who talk to each other. But in one of those, there's these kind of lizard guys who at one point kind of get in big war with the culture. And they, they all go to Andromeda and end up in Andromeda and they're incredibly long lived. So I'll go for Andromeda. I also like it because it's going to crash into the Milky Way in a few billion years and kind of destroy everything. So that, you know, what's not to like in a galaxy that's going to crash into another one and destroy everything? And that's probably the best answer I've had so far to that question. Yeah, the impeding doom in a couple, well, a few billion years, something to look forward to, exciting stuff. <laughs> all right. That's a good start. So one of the things that I don't usually see when I talk to tech people is being a diplomat for last, was it 15 years? Well, previously for like 14, 15 years uh, from my you know mental maths on your LinkedIn profile. So I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about that. I'm, I'm really curious how that affected your journey and you know what made you jump to begin with. And in general, you've been to quite a few places. So um, more on that in a minute. But let's first talk about... Terminus DB. So full disclosure, I watched a few of your presentations, scanned through the website. And for those who haven't seen uh, any of them, one of them basically starts with Luke introducing an Excel file and saying, here's like 20 different projects that do Git for data. And they're all inferior to our stuff. <laughs> so what's, what's Terminus DB? Where do you start with that? Yeah, so so thanks, Miko. So we are a open source graph database and document store. And we have, we're an immutable database. We kind of try to be a Git for data and also then provide a GitHub for data. So we have Terminus Hub, which operates like a, a GitHub for data. And the database then itself is like a Git for data. And um, I wouldn't say the others are inferior. They're just different and they do mm -hmm. different things. And there's definitely, you know, especially in machine learning operations, there's been a real proliferation of tools that like to say that they're Git for data. And it's almost become a joke. In one of those videos, I was talking at the um, Knowledge Graph conference recently, and I pulled out a screenshot from the, the MLOps Slack and somebody had had a, okay, let's set up a channel called Bad Startup Ideas and it'll be all hilarious and we'll have a joke. And one of the other participants put up something called Git for Data as a terrible startup idea because <laughs> there's so many of them. There's so many of them that call themselves Git for Data because there's a huge hole. There's, you know, Git has had such an enormous and, you know, distributed revision control in general has had such an enormous impact in software development. And now as we get from a, you know, the, the era of the lone data scientist into the era of the data engineer, when you're trying to build reliable pipelines that deliver value into business, you need something like Git to make that all happen. Um, and so Terminus DB, you know, is one of the types of solutions for that. 
that'll allow you to have versions of your data through a pipeline that you can then have dev, you can then stage to, to, to main, and exactly that, that we kind of try and mirror some of those Git semantics and Git processes, but in a proper database that's queryable and where you can, you know, query deltas, you can query diffs between different states yeah. of the database. Okay, so many things to touch upon now. You drop so many, you know, casually. Open source, distributed source control, Git. You mentioned both document and some kind of schema from what I understand. So maybe let's try to like decompose that a little bit for, um, you know, smaller bits. So, you know, I think it's probably arguable that uh, the distributed kind of source control and in general, the source control uh, modern, the way that we see it now is probably one of the biggest inventions in <laughs> writing software in the recent history. And then I guess the GitHub that you also mentioned kind of adds this entire layer of socializing on top of that, the entire culture of GIFs and memes and <laughs> all of that and makes it into basically a club in a sense, right? A society rather than uh, just the code exchange there. So when you're saying, you know, Git for data, it kind of sounds a bit like Uber for X, right? When all of a sudden everybody had this type of idea of saying Uber for X, right? Yeah. When you say that, like, is more most of the value that you're hoping to build in the actual data inside of the GitHub for data that you're talking about, or is it more in the tooling? So that's a really interesting question. So what we would see is that one of the things that goes with Git as a, as a software development system is the microservices revolution that allows distributed teams to break down complex code bases and work much more efficiently in terms mm -hmm. of development time. And what we want to be able to do similarly in, in data is to allow those teams, that those domain teams to become much more efficient by working with distributed data and data, data products. And really we see the value as a combination of organizational shift where you can devolve responsibility for dealing with data products out to domain teams by enabling them with technology. And revision control is an absolutely essential piece of that because in order to trust domain teams to actually deal with the data effectively, you have to be able to roll back. And then for anybody that is operating on that, you want to be able to have you know, branches. And actually, we found that describing them as branches can be confusing in a data setting. And we're now talking them more like versioned graphs, that within mm -hmm. any one database or data product, you have a series of version graphs. And those version graphs might be, you know, they might be like dev and, and main, like you'd have in Git. And the main being the production one that's running some application somewhere within your enterprise or or a web app, um, and then dev could be the dev one that you mess around with. But you could also have you know version graphs like the one that has no personally identifiable information that you can surface up to the rest of the company, and you can manage that just much more effectively if it's managed in a decentralized team way. So that's really mm -hmm. the sort of enterprise architecture that we're hoping to enable. Now, we're kind of, you know, we're at the beginning of that journey uh, from Terminus DB, but that's really the vision of where we create value within the enterprise. And then okay. to kind of, maybe I'll just turn back a little bit and give a short bit of our kind of, of our trajectory, because we, we're a university spin-out. We came out of Trinity College in Dublin. I'm, I'm sitting here in Dublin, Ireland right now. Um, and 
you know, we were a very large research project that was led by the European Commission, funded by them to build the technical architecture for something called SESHAD. It's a global history data bank. So bringing all of the economic and social data sets from all of human history and then providing them in a single machine readable format so that people could do advanced analytics and looking at long durée. So we kind of came out of that world of just really complex schema and complex collaboration amongst a lot of different people and built the software there and then spun it out of university as that. And when we first came out, we were kind of, you know, we were looking at large scale uh, implementations of graph and enterprise and now went down the, the more open source, more open science uh, type of route um, to try and kind of, you know, build a community around that. Okay, so that makes perfect sense. Uh, but I'm wondering from a perspective of, you know, someone who just, kind of heard about it and wants to kick the tires. How different is it? You know, you mentioned some of the problems with using Git and GitHub for data, like querying the revisions and stuff like that. What's the experience like? Is it more like Git or like a database? I think I saw somewhere the query language WOQL. What's that like? So Wackle uh, is a data log. It's, you know, it's like data logs been hanging around for 40 years as a query language, but it's, it, it's finally now kind of coming a little bit of center stage. And there are a bunch of up and coming databases that are using Wackle or not using Wackle, but using data logs and variants of data logs. So you have databases like Datomic that people might be aware of, Kraken, Open Crux. So there's a bunch of new up and coming databases that are using data log as a query language because it can... It can just contain a lot of complexity. And as you get into lots of complex data, you know, SQL runs out of headroom and, and picking up something like data log, which Wackle is based on, that is. So we'd say it's, it's quite, um, quite SQL-like, mm -hmm. but uh, it is obviously there's, a, there's some learning to do between it and SQL. Um, for for people that are picking up the database, but we're we're more of a database than than a Git type system, and um, so we we borrow a lot of those Git functions in order to describe things that happen in the database. But we're a proper database with a with a proper full query language, and um, so you can do all the database type of things. The sorts of use cases we're we're focused on are, are more analytics at the moment than being you know a an operational database for 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 the back end of a of a you know, high throughput application. Just because we see a lot of problems in analytics, you know, it's just not a, a solved problem. And, you know, I, I won't go back to it again, but the truth is, I think for a lot of people probably listening to this is that, you know, the cloud data warehouse or the data lake, data swamp, you know, um, they're bottlenecks um, that you yeah. have to go through in order to kind of solve things. So distributing things in the same way that software revision control like Git allowed you to distribute work there like that, that just seems like a no-brainer to me. It does. Although I'm still trying to picture that. So we're kind of mixing a lot of different things. You, you yeah. mentioned SQL, which is tables and rows and, and queries like that. Documents, which is, I guess, makes sense because a lot of the data natively is some kind of CSV somewhere, right, that you're going to want to do uh, put in there. And you also mentioned graph. So I'm curious how all of those different um, kind of basically approaches to, to, to storing the data and working with it works in terms of discoverability of that thing. Like, 
what what's the magic sauce now to kind of put it all together to help with the discoverability as opposed to just you know i can stick a few csv files in git and kind of <laughs> call it a day right exactly yeah i mean uh, and people do that and uh, we see a lot of people that are sticking csvs on git in order to say that's revision control and like that probably works fine for some people but once you kind of get into more complexity then it just all falls apart so for us, the, the big thing for us is that we've got strong data models and we give strong schema support within the database and we version schema with code or, or mm -hmm. I mean with data. So we have versioning of both all the way down to the to the base. And under the hood, we're an RDF database, in fact. So, but we speak JSON to everything. So we're JSON LD over the wire. And we kind of, you know, realize that everybody now is very comfortable in a JSON first world and a document first world. So we're um, shaping ourselves towards that and trying to, you know, make it easy for, for coders, for programmers, for anybody there who just wants to have a document store, be able to use our database. In, in, in the way that they like and not have to go through elaborate building of schema up front, um, but be able to do that a little bit later on into your project when you have a greater idea of where you're going. Sure. You mentioned under the hood, which gets me curious. Can you talk a bit how it's implemented? You know, what is under the hood? What technologies, languages, and all of that? A quick yeah. you know, flyover yeah, tour. To. <laughs> it, we're, it's slightly um, peculiar and speaks to our background because we, when we came out of university, we come from the linked data community initially. And so our database is implemented in Rust at the storage layer. So the distributed storage layer, so the Git-like stuff is, is built in Rust. And then the query layer is built in Prolog, which is a logical programming language uh, from the 1970s as well which isn't very popular with coders these days, but we kind of have the trendiest and the hottest language as our storage layer, which is Rust, <laughs> and then one of the least popular languages of all as our server layer. And um, so, you know, it's really, really strong on query. So therefore we found it uh, quick to develop in, quick to find the sorts of functionality that we want. Yeah, so, so kind of th that's our base layer. We're, we implemented the database from the ground up, both the storage engine and the, the query. We, we don't really have anybody else's technologies in there, though now we are definitely starting to build out more links within the ETL ecosystem and things like that. So the externalities of the the database are are better served. My advice to all the listeners is: don't try and build a database yourself. It's crazy. It's a <laughs> terrible idea. Take right, which years. is a which is a perfect segue to open source. So, how easy is it to get open source contributions to Prolog? Really and... hard. That, yeah, that's hard. <laughs> I mean, we we get them. So, the place that we mostly get them is into the is into the client. We have a Python client, and we have quite an active community around developing that and helping with that. Obviously, the Python community is particularly good at open source, and then the Rust community as well. So, Rust obviously isn't that well known, though it is popular. So, there's not that many people who have a very deep knowledge, but people do participate and contribute to the Rust code base because they want to learn Rust and they want to kind of be involved in projects around Rust. So definitely we find it there, but Prolog, very, very few outside contributors, though there is a committed community of people that know Prolog and they have contributed. Uh, we've had an interesting journey in open source insofar as we started as, as GPL3 and we mm -hmm. switched our code base over to Apache 2.0 
because we had a lot of people in the community that were wanted to embed the database into applications and things like that. And they were worried about the, 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 the copy left aspects of the GPL. Uh, even though I don't think it's really that significant a concern and they weren't really engaging in any practices that would have caused them any concern. There's just a general feeling that there's something bad there. Yeah. And so we switched over to, to Apache and, and that's been great. We have a kind of active community of contributors. Again, though, you know, to, to go back to under the hood, we also use something called succinct data structures. So they allow us to approach the theoretical minimum size of data that can still be queried. And so they're quite new and interesting data structures. And we use those so that we can kind of facilitate the collaboration features because we want to be able to share Delta efficiently so that we can send a delta to somebody else so it has to be very small and um, so we use those but again like there's just not a lot of people that know that the expectation that we're going to get people contributing code to the core of the database is, is relatively limited but then on the fringes you know in the javascript client in the python client we, we do get plenty of people participating and open source is great you know and the vibrancy of the community is fantastic yeah and you know a lot of people say that the open source is eating the software world now and i definitely see more and more of this technology is being used all over the place now and even on this podcast we're seeing more and more companies jump into the open source first model and kind of you know just work around that for the actual business model. I also noticed that you have very kind of strong commitments on your website. It's like now and forever open source. I was wondering if that was like a dig against like the don't sass me kind of wave of changes and licenses recently. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It I is. think that left to right. It tells it's me dig against MongoDB mostly. Mongo, Elastic, all of these guys, you know, basically leaving open source. Uh, after Fedham. I mean, you know, I kind of understand their reasons because, you know, AWS and these other guys are, you know, launching Document DB and, and trying to come into their space, but yeah. they were built by the open source community, you know, and then turning around and saying, well, we're not open source anymore when we're, you know, a $5 billion business because it's not enough of profit. Seems to me from where we're standing that you are that those companies are enormously successful and that they should remain committed to open source even in the face of you know competition so it's forever yeah. even though we will launch a you know we will launch a cloud platform um as well but we'll we'll stay open source with the core database you know forever awesome so for everybody who's tuned in so far and their interest got picked i know i certainly am interested how do you get started with that what's the best way to kind of go kick the tires test it with some data because with the data stuff you need some data to <laughs> to actually play with do you have like a sandbox environment where people play or some kind of tutorial that introduces what's the you know one-on-one -on -one? yeah so we have a bunch of tutorials with a bunch of data associated with them and the obviously the database can be downloaded directly from our from our website um, and we have a discord community that you know can can point everybody in the right direction of um, the various uh, different tutorials with various different bits of cool data we are about to drop a um a cloud data platform which will have a kind of sandbox and a trial and have all of the nice um easy to use uh, easy to extract data in it for people to mess around with awesome so terminusdb.com terminusdb.com yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah and then we have our discord community which is really where we do most of our kind of chatting i mean we we were on slack and we've moved across to discord and we, we just like it way more 
I have to say. The gamers design things in a much more ergonomic way. Definitely. Big fan of the skirt. Also a big fan of the pricing model. Yeah. <laughs> Come by comparison. Okay. Awesome. So I can't wait anymore. Tell me about the diplomat. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I've never seen anyone move from politics to tech. I've seen a few people move the other way around. <laughs> What happened? How, what attracted you? Was it, were you in tech at the same time or did you completely switch and change, um, you know, because you felt like doing a change? Yeah, completely switched and changed, you know? So I was a diplomat for the Irish government for 13 years. I was in the embassy in South Africa and the embassy in Greece. I served in the United Nations in New York for a while. Um, and then I, I came back to Dublin um, after spending four years in Greece. And it was a great time in Greece because I was there through the, um, you know, an economic crisis and a refugee crisis. It was a really interesting time to be in that part of the world. And Greece is just a fantastic country, you know, full stop. And we, you know, we also looked after some of the countries in that part of the world. So we were responsible for Serbia and Albania. So we travel a lot in the, on the Balkan Peninsula. And then I did a, a year and a bit as the head of the government's Brexit communications. And, you know, oh it, during the middle of Brexit, it's a very intense period. So I, you know, an opportunity presented itself to take a jump across into tech. And I thought this seems like something interesting to do. When I arrived then, I um, immediately regretted it uh, in a sense, because <laughs> you kind of, you land and everybody is saying Kubernetes and Docker and Terraform and, you know, this next buzzword, this next buzzword. Um, and you feel immediately lost in a world that seems so alien. In diplomacy, diplomacy is sales, like everything. Everything is sales, you know. It's all about selling something. In that case, you're selling Ireland or, or selling an idea. And again, then you're kind of back into trying to understand something so that you can explain it effectively to to somebody else and really that's what 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 I tried to do when I when I came into tech is try and get a, a decent understanding of the way things work together and then you know try and explain it back to people all right but yeah so, I mean it, it it is it's been a, a crazy transition when I think back you know how different the worlds are the beauty of startups is that it's a very relaxed and open environment where people are willing to learn and to share and that's very different from working in a diplomatic system especially when you're abroad and there's a lot more cards much closer to the chest about who knows what and what are secrets what are uh, open and really tech isn't really like that I mean it, it's a very welcoming and a positive learning community most of the time. I mean, obviously there are dark underbellies to that as well, but there, there's just a lot of people who want to want to learn and want to be positive about learning. And that's great. Most of the time. Most of the time. Yeah, most of the time. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So basically move from selling Ireland to selling tech now. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. And sounds like you, you wish the diplomacy was a bit more open. Is there anything that you wish tech was more like diplomacy is in the other direction? Well, that's a difficult question now. <laughs> I, I suppose that like tech probably can, is like diplomacy in a sense. I mean, when you get like a lot of these very big corporates like Amazon and a Apple um, and they get to the scale of being, uh, you know, as large as states, I mean, obviously 
Um, yeah. You know, you got a two trillion dollar market capitalization for Apple, and it has all of those branches associated with it, like public affairs or public policy, who are effectively diplomats for those very large tech companies who are trying to shift public policy to make it more amenable to those corporate concerns. So, you know, big tech companies and the biggest ones have their own diplomatic services out there doing diplomatic things. But what would I take with me? There's within the diplomatic service itself, there's an incredible collegiality. There's a very, very, very strong team spirit within there. You know, you might be presented with other diplomatic services who might have other aims, but on your own team, on the inside, there's a very, very strong support structure that does feel like family. And I um, I miss that. I do miss that working in a small organization that you, you know, you can just, you can never quite recreate that sort of family feeling uh, within a large organization like that. That makes sense. Although I got to say, an idea of being a diplomat in Athens sounds pretty, pretty damn attractive, especially right now. Yeah, it was. It was a amazing time because if you if you think back, it was, you know, Yanis Varoufakis, it was yep. Syriza, it was Tsipras, it was all of these kind of, you know, larger than life figures emerging onto the scene. And you're right there in the front row uh, seeing all this happen and reporting back on it. So uh, you know, fascinating, really fascinating time to, to, to be there. Yeah. And yeah, you're calling this a fascinating time going through all the crisis, including the Brexit one. I'm guessing you really uh, experienced a lot of one in a lifetime events <laughs> this way. <laughs> yeah, well, the Brexit one was different for me because I was, you know, looking after communications. And I suppose it's like, you know, for anybody who's working in startup or, or in tech, it's like the day you announce your 50 million uh, Series A or Series B, but every day is like that in terms of the intensity of communications work because Ireland was so central to it. And so many international journalists were interested in Ireland's perspective on Brexit. So you just had this constant flow of the media spotlight being on Ireland and on your office and trying to coordinate that across a system of 35,000 uh, civil servants is very challenging. So it, it was just a very intense period. And, you know, I think it was very successful from Ireland's perspective. We, we managed to explain our position very well. I think that kind of got out there. And, you know, Britain's gone, gone totally nutty since Brexit as well. It remains kind of a little bit... Um, a little bit nutty. Yeah. And I think that's probably where we should leave that. <laughs> so <laughs> people have very strong opinions on this stuff. Okay. So to shift gears a little bit, because we're almost out of time, I'm curious out of, you know, your very unique kind of career path, if you were to pinpoint a single one thing that you did uh, that provided the highest return on investment for your career. And it can be anything from a book you read to a course you attended to the meditation technique you tried out. What would it be? Yeah, that's an interesting one again. I mean, it's a difficult thing. Now, I have four young children. And um, so I, I have to say that they're obviously the most positive thing that happened in a sense because they provide me with incredible grounding. Um, and no matter what what's going on in terms of everything collapsing or everything being incredibly difficult, and um, they uh, give me great grounding into, you know, just being their father and being, you know, shouted at for whatever else is going on in their lives. But I, I'd say like, you know, one of the things 
that I've started to do recently because of seeing all of these Silicon Valley kind of bros talking about it is regulating my sleep to a very great degree. So going to bed in at the same time every single night and regulating it to, to a very great degree. And that's just been transformational in terms of um, my daily ability to be productive. Um, and I, I, you know, it seems so foundational and so simple, but previously I would have been up working till 2 a.m. or 1 a.m. Um, or doing something else. And changing that's just allowed me to be much more productive. In terms of a of a book, geez, I don't know. That's, that's a hard one. There's so many uh, great books out there. I really, you know, when I came into tech, and I wonder if other people know this, but I read The Phoenix Project, which is like this novel that's based around um, an, an IT department that's going through digital transformation and kind of implementing microservices type or architecture. But it's written in novel format. Like it's a story about a guy who is the head of IT within a corporation that's got a terrible IT department and, you know, treats the developers very badly and how through his story, he kind of gives rebirth to the company. That's amazing. I, I really enjoyed that. Awesome. So much good stuff. So kids, when you listen to that 10 years from now, that's proud. And remember, he did good. And the sleep thing is also interestingly something that I, I kind of struggled for a long time with. And only recently during the pandemic, <laughs> I, I was kind of forced to regulate that too. And I really saw a big improvement just from, you know, getting tired at the same time and going to sleep at the same time. And then, you know, crazy things like waking up without the alarm. <laughs> so I can definitely yeah. share support for that idea. This really has been great. Thank you so much for your time, Luke. Um, I think we learned quite a lot interesting stuff about uh, unusual kind of database slash git slash something that TerminusDB seems to be. Learned a little bit about how being a diplomat is uh, for Ireland specifically and got some good book recommendations. So Luke Finney, CCO at TerminusDB. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Miko. It was a real pleasure.